Turns out I have a lot more questions about tactical violence. And considering the year we're all living through, specifically race riots. I wonder, why do people riot? Are race riots ever effective? Why are the burning of Black Wall Street and the riots throughout the 60s and the civil rights movement both classified as race riots, despite the fact that they're incredibly different? And in looking for the answers, one, I found out that race riots actually have a way longer history than I ever knew of, which is why this is going to be a two-part episode where I move pretty quickly through a lot of topics that I'm going to come back to more in depth in later episodes. And two, I went back to some of the things I learned in one of my classes at UChicago called the American Vigilante, because riots are generally large-scale extra-legal activities, so they do have ties to the idea of vigilantism. Thinking back on that class, I invited my friend John A on. We both took this class and graduated this year with history degrees, but in taking this class that mainly focused on white vigilantism in America, we both thought that black people make an interesting case to think about vigilantism and extra-legal activity because of disappointment and failure of the government to address communal needs. So here's a little clip of us discussing what vigilantism is and its special relevance to black history. It generally is. We give power to the government, so the government does stuff for us. But if they're not enacting what we want them to do, and specifically morality, is like often associated yeah. with vigilantism. So if they're letting immoral things happen or acting immorally themselves, then it's our job as the people to like take back that power and do what yeah. the government isn't doing. Yeah, exactly. And I think like even on a less lofty scale, like vigilantism is anytime someone is not like an actual actor of the state, like a police officer doing what the government should be doing. Like we talked about this in class a lot, like superhero, no one goes around like calling a superhero, calling Superman like a vigilante, but I mean, he's doing stuff that is supposed to be the job of the state. So, you know, like just doing that acting outside of the state definitely would count as vigilantism. And if you know anything about black Americans, there's just, it's preposterous to say like black America does is, doesn't do that like all the time. I feel like black Americans are kind of, an amazing group to think about self-government and self-determination and like internal resistance. It's definitely something like I, I read a little bit more about like Black vigilantism generally when working on this paper. And I was really surprised by like some of the stuff that I found. Like there's a book all about this, I think a historian and a lawyer or one of the two making the argument that like no snitching and like the ways that that has in like the 90s and the early 2000s and a lot of lower income black communities became like a policy as kind of its own form of vigilantism. And I thought that was really interesting, just kind of like refusing to cooperate. Like we are gonna set it up our own. We're not gonna bring these people into our communities. I, th I thought that's a really cool way of thinking about it. Whoa, yeah, that makes so much sense. Cause it's like the police are just gonna, like, you're not gonna get a fair trial. You're gonna go in jail, like mandatory minimums. You're gonna be in jail for way longer than you're supposed to. So let's just, wow. Yeah, yeah I, I'm actually, I just looked it up. Uh, so the person who determines this calls it shadow vigilantism. Shadow vigilantes, how distrust in the justice system breeds a new kind of lawlessness. So definitely not in a, like a, 
laudatory <laughs> or praising way, but I thought it was an interesting like way to think. Yeah. And it makes sense. We've always been failed by the government, by the police, so we go outside of it. That was my friend, Jane, who will definitely be back for part two to discuss the Rodney King riots. In the meantime, I should definitely clarify that not all race riots are acts of vigilantism or involve people who would consider themselves to be vigilantes, but in being a like collective action outside of the law, they reveal the issues that people have with society that they feel aren't being addressed and dealt with, and that because of that, only they can say it right. And that brings us to the beginning of the era of race riots and the black abolitionists of last episode, because they felt that the American government failed to protect them and their freedom. So they took up tactical violence in order to keep themselves and others from being kidnapped back to slavery, which we spent a lot of time discussing last episode. So if you want to know more about the black abolitionists, check out episode three. At the same time, during this time, there was a lot of violence and race riots from white people in the direction of black people because of fears of the civil war and coming racial equality. So they just got worse, more frequent, and more violent the closer the civil war came. And they were mostly against free blacks in the north, never really against white abolitionists. So I want to talk about one example of protective violence from black people, which is the Christiana Riot of 1851. For a little context, as we discussed last episode, by 1851, the Fugitive Slave Law had already been enacted. This meant that they no longer had any kind of safety or security in the North, whether they were escaped slaves or had been born free. It was now legal for slave catchers to enter the North and kidnap any black person back into slavery and to deputize any northerner to help them under penalty of law. Which meant that especially states on the border of north and south like Pennsylvania were often targets of slave catchers, which meant that black people needed to come together to protect themselves. So our story starts with the Lancaster Black Protection Society founded by a super interesting historical figure named William Parker, who established the society specifically saying that he and the people in it were willing to give up their lives to protect themselves and to protect other black people from slavery. And William Parker did. One day, four escaped slaves showed up at his house and he took them in. And when their former owner, a man named Edward Gorsuch, showed up with a sheriff's posse looking for those slaves, Parker's wife signaled and a bunch of community members surrounded the posse with weapons ready to fight. And they did. They killed Gorsuch. They drove out the posse and William Parker, his wife, and the former slaves he was hiding all escaped up to Canada. So this particular race riot was super important because the aftermath and trial overall became huge national news, which kind of forced everyone to think about the Fugitive Slave Law and what it would cost and drew a lot of sympathy towards the cause of the abolitionists. And in the end, no one was ever actually charged with the crime because Parker was up north and no one could really decide who to blame. One of the guiding questions I said I had was, what are the effects of riots? Do they cause social change? These riots can be said to have accelerated social change because particularly the black initiated ones essentially served to demonstrate the idea of no justice, no peace. They said through their protective violence that just because America was not at war with the South by maintaining slavery, the United States was not at peace. Slavery was a violent institution, which meant that there 
could not be peace with slavery, which made war a less and less unappealing option for northerners and caused sympathy for the abolitionist cause because they saw how violent slavery was in their own communities close to home. So yeah, it accelerated social change. These riots bring us right up to the Civil War, which, despite the fact that America was, you know, in the middle of a civil war, this was an era of race riots in the North, which goes back to our episode one discussion of the fact that Northerners were generally not opposed to slavery because they didn't want free black labor in the North because that would be competition for jobs. And in the North, with industrialization, jobs were already scarce and the working conditions were not great. Pay was low. They didn't want competition to make that situation any worse. So these riots were generally based around the threat of black labor. A second threat ties to the idea that because black people were considered subhuman, they were also considered to have like an animal-like sexuality, which made them sexual predators, and people didn't want their white women to be victims of that, so they were fearful of race mixing. And the third and biggest cause of these riots were the draft. Northerners felt betrayed by the government because that's not what the war was originally supposed to be about because the draft was enacted after the Emancipation Proclamation, which they hadn't expected to be going to war to free black people, especially since they felt they were going to go down and free black people who would then take their jobs and potentially assault their women. They were not having that, so that was the biggest catalyst for these riots. And the labor riots generally involved Irish immigrants attacking black people because in the 19th century America was not super into Irish people because they were immigrants and America has never really been a fan of any immigrants especially new ones so these Irish people generally had the hardest struggle getting jobs and they usually had the worst and lowest paying ones which they knew meant that free black labor would be the biggest threat to their jobs. These riots often expanded into trying to purge all aspects of the Republican government and Black prosperity from whatever community was rioting, which interestingly actually meant that the police were targets because they were considered an extension of the government. Interesting because most of the time in white-initiated race riots, the police are on the side of the rioters and even participate. But we'll get into that a little more later. And the worst of these riots was... In New York in 1863, a lot of people died, and it wasn't just a riot. It was also looting of both black property and governmental property. There were lynchings of black people. Two police officers were killed. And on the idea of did it cause social change, it definitely slowed social change. One, it reveals that there were a lot of underlying labor issues to begin with. The fact that jobs were so scarce and terrible that people were fearful of what added competition would do just shows that the job market wasn't great to begin with. And second, it definitely slowed down social change because the government, after seeing how much destruction there was at just the idea of black people coming north, did work to keep black people in the South during and after the war. That's why they allowed a lot of institutional things in the South that kept black people stuck in the South. But I say slowed because it didn't take very long for black people to start fleeing up north from the terrible conditions in the South. After the Civil War, during the era of Reconstruction from 1865 to 1877, that was actually the worst period of race riots. They were mostly based in the South, and the South wanted to deny the results of the Civil War and restrict the freedom of black people as much as possible. 
The entire moral order of the South was based off having a unifying identity around slavery and black inferiority, and they felt like it was a threat to civilization itself to have any changes to that. So race riots were kind of the force behind legal measures to restrict black freedom. But on the other hand, there were some black-initiated riots, trying to stop things from going backwards. But those often ended very badly for black people. Whenever they rallied to protect themselves, white pushback was very extreme and very indiscriminate. A lot of black people would die when a small group of them did something to stand up for themselves. At the same time, there were riots in both rural and urban places. The rural riots were the worst because of close proximity and a lot of division. And these riots were almost always about politics or self-protection. Black people would rally together, generally around an election. And white people, seeing that threat to their political power, would attack black people, intimidate them as a way to disenfranchise them or just to kill them. And because of that, black people would generally not participate in elections and Republican governments would fail. They would either be driven out or they wouldn't get elected in the first place. And then urban riots, a little different. They were generally caused by black assertiveness because there would be union troops in a lot of cities. So black people would assert their rights. But despite having these union troops around, white people had the support of the police. So still didn't end well for black people. One of the most volatile cities was New Orleans, which actually had political violence around state elections in 1873, 1874, and 1877. The last form of race riots were Klan violence. The Klan usually justified it as trying to save the white race and maintain a moral order. For an example of what these political-based riots were like and the effect that they had, we're going to go to Georgia in 1868 and the Camilla riot and or massacre. Kind of a massacre. Anyway, two months after Georgia was readmitted into the Union during Reconstruction, an amazing thing happened. 33 black men were elected to the Georgia State Assembly. This group, they're so significant that we call them the original 33. But right after that extraordinary thing happened, 28 of them were expelled because they were black. In response, one of them, his name was Philip Joyner, rallied people to march 25 miles across southwest Georgia in a protest. By the time the rally got to Camilla, Georgia, there were nearly 300 people, and the sheriff told them to surrender their guns when they got to the edge of town. They said, absolutely not, and walked into the town square. They were ambushed. Gunshots just started coming from everywhere. It was very violent. 15 people died. A lot more were injured, and because they were being ambushed, a lot of people just fled and hid, including all 33 of the original 33. None of them ever returned to the Georgia State House. And, I mean, this event was so significant that another black person was never elected to the Georgia General Assembly, which is what they called it by the time this happened, until 1962, nearly a hundred years later. His name was Leroy Johnson, and there's definitely going to be more information about him in the show notes. Check that. And after seeing all of this violence, many black people did not vote in the next election. The deflated turnout, plus a little bit of fraud, allowed white Democrats to take control of the governments in southwest Georgia. That did put Georgia back under like stricter Reconstruction military rule, but also the Camilla Massacre hadn't been acknowledged until after Leroy Johnson got into the Georgia State Assembly. 
there's now a statue in Atlanta at the Capitol, but before then, no one really talked about it. This race riot really demonstrates the kind of social change that Reconstruction riots had. Reconstruction riots really served to thwart social change because in response to all this violence came the most radical wave of Reconstruction. A lot of radical Republicans took office around that time. That's when the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment were passed. And that's when a lot of Black people got into office, like the original 33. But that didn't stop the violence. And because there was so much violence, this is one of the things that ended Reconstruction. Northerners and Republicans were so frustrated by the continued violence that they gave up and never really enforced the ideas of the 14th and the 15th Amendment. The end of Reconstruction involves the complicated political maneuvering around the election of Rutherford B. Hayes in 1876. And it's a complicated ordeal for another day. But for now, what's important is that when Northern troops withdrew from the South, that did not just leave racial harmony. And the South did not keep its promise to respect the rights of Black people. This actually ushered in an era of race rioting called White Terror that went from 1877 to 1898. This era of race rioting was characterized by lynching. A whole lot of lynching. Which was 70% Black people being lynched. Lynching was very brutal. My main book that I read to do this research gives a few very brutal lynchings, and I don't really want to rehash those, but the book, it'll be in the show notes if you want to learn more. They were very gross and very violent and aggressive. But what I do want to talk about is why the reasons that were given for these lynchings. But first, a quick note about lynching. Late 19th century lynching fits very traditionally into the idea of vigilantism because it was mob violence. Generally, a group of people would decide that they needed to enact justice for something because they felt like the legal system wasn't going to or was moving too slow. So they would come together and punish a perceived crime, sometimes extra legally, but sometimes with the support of the legal system. And these lynchings were generally very well attended by people across age and gender and even class. Even though these lynchings sometimes turned into a frenzy of violence, because justice was an important aspect of them, even with lynchings of black people, there was usually a reason given other than just lynching a black person because they were black. One of the big things was that idea of black men being sexual animals who it was feared would attack white women and sexually assault them. Rape was one of the big reasons why black people were lynched. The second was murder. Murder was actually usually the most common reason. The third reason was basically anything. Generally, anything perceived as a black person being uppity could be a cause for a lynching or a beating. Theft, being sassy, being too forward with a white person, all of these could also be cause for lynchings. This idea of black people being uppity was generally blamed on giving them rights. A lot of times, the accusations that led to lynchings said that giving black people rights, specifically voting rights, gave them so much confidence and sauciness that they felt okay going around and raping white women. Blame was usually placed on trying to give black people any sort of rights. But Ida B. Wells, a black journalist who did a lot of work bringing attention to the problem of lynching in the South as a journalist and was also a civil rights activist who helped found a little organization called the NAACP, very clearly pointed out a different reason behind these lynchings and riotings. She spoke out saying these riots were enacted in order to keep black people in their place and to keep them down. 
Wildly enough, after she wrote this, a mob went to her press office. She was in New York at the time and did not go back to Tennessee for a long time. So as much as it was about the idea of black conduct, a lot of it was just about black success and trying to hinder it. Especially since one of the drivers was just the idea that a lot of white people didn't see black people as humans, which meant that brutal lynchings were a valid way to deal with them in their minds. On the idea of did this violence lead to any social change, I would say yes. It led specifically to a change in the composition of Southern society. It was this violence, the abundance of lynchings at this time, that led to the first Great Migration. In response to constant terrorization, they moved north, hoping not to be barred from economic advancement. But as we'll talk about in part two, when we get into the era of race war and the Red Summer, this didn't quite go as planned, and race riots migrated up north with black people. That's about the end of 19th century race rioting, a time that shows us the way that rioting is generally about the way that society is, either frustration at changes in society or frustration at not being heard and things not changing. Tune in next time, part two. Super exciting. This is where we're going to get into race war in the Red Summer, fighting fascism at home and abroad in the 1940s around World War II, the turbulence of the civil rights movement in the 60s, and the Rodney King riot in 1992. 20th century race rioting is very interesting because that is when the concept of what a race riot shifts. Tune into part two. As always, if you like this, share it, subscribe, like us on Facebook, and all power to all people, y'all.